Anesthesia Deconstructed is supported by National University's CRNA program. National University's CRNA program is one of the nation's top programs for CRNAs and dedicated to making you a successful CRNA. The program doesn't just prepare you for entry-level practice. National focuses on making you a full-service provider and gives you insight into what is actually happening in the industry. With connections to faculty with backgrounds in advanced clinical practice, academics, research, and anesthesia services management. Learn more at nu.edu. Welcome to Anesthesia Deconstructed, science, politics, realities. Listen in as medical professionals join industry expert Mike McKinnon to discuss the latest science and medical advancements, the effects of our political climate, and the realities of today's changing healthcare environment. Let's get started with your host, Mike McKinnon. Hello, everybody. I'd like to welcome you to the podcast, and I'd like to welcome our guest, Dr. Cameron Kyle Sedell. He is a dual-boarded physician in emergency medicine and critical care, and he is currently working as an emergency and critical care physician at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We appreciate having you here, Dr. Kyle Sedell. Uh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. Well, tell us a little bit about your practice, where you're practicing, and, and how it is there. Um, so, so I work at Maimonides Medical Center, which is a large uh, um, kind of hybrid academic community center, a very large center, about five, six hundred beds um, in, in Brooklyn, sort of a slightly the outer borough, Brooklyn, South Brooklyn, uh, New York. Um, I, uh, I actually I trained in emergency medicine in Detroit receiving, and then I came here right after residency. Um, and I worked as an attending in the ER for a while, and then I did sort of a short uh, stint in Haiti, and after that, uh, just recently completed a, a critical care fellowship at the University of Maryland Medical Center, and then I uh, came back to Maimonides, and we were actually in the um, kind of in the plans. We were hoping to open, you know, one of these uh, ED ICUs, oh, yeah. which are sort of being kind of opened around the country, and then sort of in the midst of planning for that, uh, sort of all of the, the COVID stuff sort of rain down on us. And, and so initially I, I was tasked with opening up an ICU, uh, sort of our first full COVID ICU. And I did that for about a week and a half. And then I have shifted now down to the ER where we are, uh, you know, we finally got, finally kind of got our ED ICU under <laughs> not necessarily the circumstance we wanted, but we now run a team that essentially takes care of all the um, very hypoxemic, high flow nasal cannula patients, right. and all the patients boarding waiting for the ICU. Oh, that's great! And so, for you, <laughs> how did you guys? Uh, how did COVID nineteen initially impact your hospital when they started to come in, and what did you see? So we kind of, I mean, we sensed somehow in New York, we sensed it was going to be bad. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's just a city that's primed for it. I mean, you could just see it on the subway and everything. It just we sensed it, and then. I'd say sort of early March, we started to get kind of a trickle. Um, and then it just in the next couple of weeks started ramping up. And so we, uh, you know, initially we were really trying to sort of uh, um, diagnose and separate people. But, it, you know, at that time it was very hard. I mean, we were um, initially getting what we were supposed to get was tests for inpatients for the turnaround time of one day and outpatients of five days. Um, and, and all those numbers did not actually meet those uh, those down. actual uh, goals. So, uh, you know, quickly we essentially turned half of our ER into a full um, kind of co- 
COVID, uh, uh, I, you know, full COVID unit, although not everyone was critical. And then everything, we shifted where the resuscitation area is. And, you know, after that, the hospital now has just sort of become primarily for the treatment of COVID. And oh. part, part of that is because, you know, most of uh, the New York community understands that probably the last place you want to be is, is near a hospital. So we're not getting, you know, we wonder where all the usual stuff. It's sort of strange that we don't have the septic patients and the GI bleeds anymore. And I hope they're doing okay out there. But, but generally, we're certainly not getting sort of the, um, you know, sprained ankles and everything. And so actually, our ER volume is probably half of what it was, but it's, you know, 90% COVID high acuity. in the whole hospital now. Yeah, high acuity and high COVID. And, you know, everything sort of we, our threshold for discharging decreased. I mean, you know, as we were filling up, we started to send people home. You know, EMS now is not always bringing people in unless they're actually, you know, have desaturation. So everything uh, got more difficult. And, and you know, the hospital basically dealt with this, this pandemic. That's uh, a, it's a lot of patients coming through there. I mean, you're seeing basically the epicenter of a lot of this stuff. Yeah, it really, in COVID, it's really such a tricky, it, it sort of flips around your hospital in the sense that, you know, before your we hospital of five, 600 people with, a, you know, you know, hundred diseases we knew how to treat, <laughs> you know, and now we have several hundred people with a disease that we're struggling with. And it really just, it turns you upside down. So As a new plan really every day, difficult. new plan every day. Well, you know, we're trying to adjust constantly, you know, but, uh, and you learn as you go, but, you know, it's like one thing we learned and why we're keeping a lot of our high flow patients in the ER is just that it's very difficult to manage a COVID patient, uh, in an unmonitored bed. Mm -hmm. Um, and yet most of our hospital beds and most hospital beds probably in this country are, are not monitored. And, you know, it's just, a, it's a progressive hypoxemic disease. And so we can admit someone. You know, we're not sending, you know, we're not admitting people that look awesome or we're sending them home. So they already don't look well and we can admit them to a, you know, medical floor. Um, but just over the next day or two or three, there's a high chance they're, you know, they're going to be pretty hypoxemic and need, um, you know, and need a monitor. And so what was happening initially is we were admitting these patients um, and then they were being put on high flow on the floors, which we went through sort of in normal times. And, but they were, didn't have monitors, and, and it's a very strange thing. You know, we'll talk, I'm sure we'll talk about sort of the strangeness of, of this disease, but patients actually do feel relatively well when, when they have oxygen, you know. So they get to the point where they're fully dependent on, on these high-flow machines, but they would feel okay. You know, they wouldn't feel overtly short of breath, and, and they were behind closed doors, and you know, so they would uh, might say, I'm going to go to the bathroom. It would take off, you know, this uh, life-sustaining uh, oxygen device, you know, and, and then we would find them on the floor sort of blue in the bathroom and we'd rush in. And so that was a very, it's a difficult, uh, that's what I mean. It's just, a, it's a difficult disease to treat. So, yeah, I think we're adjusting pretty good. And, and, you know, the hospital's sort of rearranging stuff. We've opened probably four or five extra ICUs and, you know, PACUs become ICUs. And mm -hmm. so, so, you know, we're working with what, with what we have, but it's certainly, it's certainly unusual times. <laughs> well, you came out, I, if, to, from my perspective, you came out pretty early, probably one of the first pre people I saw talking about how, you know, this was basically an oxygenation problem, not a pressure problem, you know, when you refer to ARDS. And, um, I, I know, I know you had mentioned in a couple of interviews that you had had some pushback on that. 
And uh, we've all seen the pictures online, you know, the 0% sad or the 54% yeah. sad on their cell phone. And you're thinking to yourself, this is against everything I've ever learned. This is wrong, <laughs> yeah. you know. And from your perspective, it, how has that changed from when people were saying, well, no, I don't know if it's that. We got to intubate these people to now. You, know, you came out right away, yeah. obviously picking this up. <laughs> so, uh, you know, in the sense that I believe this is an oxygenation problem, to be honest, it hasn't changed at all. You know, I, I really, I, I still believe that. And, um, you know, and I think uh, especially, and this is why I'm happy, really happy to talk to sort of an anesthesia crowd, because I think it's hard to see this sometimes depending on where you are in the hospital. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if you're just in an ICU and you're just receiving patients that are intubated, um, it's very hard to figure out the physiology right. and some of the physiology may have changed. Um, but so, you know, in some sense, I think sort of, you know, uh, EMS and ER doctors and anesthesiologists and, and, and medic people on the medical floors just watching this are, are given a different scope of the disease. And I think especially for anesthesiologists, and I talk to a lot of the anesthesiologists, uh, uh, in my hospital, because as you said, they're sort of, you know, they're being called to, to, to come down and, and um, put in breathing tubes on a great many number of people. And, and I, I think it's that single decision for me, the decision whether um, you're going to intubate someone, which was, you know, kind of put the light on in my head because, you know, we were sitting there with patients that were very, very, I mean, their PAO2s were very low despite large amounts of supplemental oxygen, but they were not exhibiting signs of respiratory failure that is to say you know they were not exhibiting time signs of respiratory fatigue um you know they just had very low oxygen levels so you know ems is getting calls and you know they i'm sure are experiencing a very strange thing where you know they're doing you know in one week they might do 20 codes and no one is coming back with epinephrine no one not even for an hour (laughs) you know not and so you know they're saying they get called you know, they get called by someone and they show up at the house five minutes later and the patient's dead, which is very unusual. It's, you know, it's not like they're breathing four times a minute because they're tiring out. And so I think for the anesthesiologists, I talked to them and they too were, you know, they were stunned by some of this because, you know, they had to decide whether they were going to, you know, I mean, they got called to put in the breathing tube and were they going to intubate someone uh, who was talking to them? And so I think it's some of those clinical observations, which, uh, you know, I think for anesthesiologists, especially that they probably get a very, because, um, you know, the anesthesia crowd will be dealing with that one decision making point so often, you know, I think that if someone's around it a lot, they'll, they'll be able to see it. I think that's an incredibly important point. You know, from my perspective, it was your videos that sort of made me start to think, well, this is not what I what I would normally do. Like my initial reaction was high flow two and self proning. Oh my God. You know, <laughs> their sats are 54 and that's not just not how you, act, how you interact with those patients. When someone's sats are 54, they aren't talking to you. So when they're talking to you, it is the most unusual thing. And it is, it has helped us develop protocols at our facility. I mean, your stuff has helped us develop protocols at our facility for self proning and high flow nasal cannula, along with the M crick guys and all those guys too. But you were the yeah, first person yeah. that we saw it from. And, uh, you know, it, it's still difficult to explain, but it's happening. No, it's very difficult to explain. And, and, and I, you know, sometimes I know a lot of people use that happy hypoxemic. Yeah. I actually, I don't use that term as much because only because, and some of them are, you know, on their phones, but 
I think it, it, it can somewhat underestimate the fact that they are very, very sick. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and so someone, you know, it, when we first saw this, I was like, gee, their PAO2s must not actually be that low. But then, you know, when we checked their, their ABGs, like, in fact, they seem to correlate. Wow. Um, so, so I think when you have someone who's a SAT of 50, you know, they actually are pretty pretty sick and so i'm not necessarily i get a little bit nervous when people have sustained sats under 70 uh, i mean under 80 um and you know but that's one of the decision making that we're you know we're trying to figure out because we don't you know we don't want to innovate them too late and we don't want to innovate them if they don't need it but i do sense that what happens is that you know if it took a week or two weeks for them to sort of adjust to these new levels um that they don't feel it too much but it is a quick spiral that you know for whatever reason, they, they, they can sort of spiral down pretty quickly, you know, to, to essentially a bradycardic death. So, you know, so, uh, I, I, you know, someone sustained stats under 80, you know, I, I still, we label them sort of priority one, even if we prone them, they're still kind of priority one, meaning that they're, they're high chance of needing intubation. They're very critical and, and they got to be watched. And, and, and but yeah, it, it's a hard, it's a weird thing because it's just something that never, yeah, it's like these interactions I've never clinically had before. Right. It's hard to know where to draw the line between innovation and not. You don't want to do iatrogenic yeah. damage to these poor people. No, exactly. And if they're sitting and, then, there, and furthermore, by the time you're making that decision, like, you know, you've got to know these patients. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and their family's not there. So you have the connection between the family right. and you're kind of rooting for them. And so it's really for it's emotional on the staff. And, you know, so even we, we say that, you know, it, I think it is, really is. It's kind of best to make a decision with another person that you're going to intubate. So you, you know, you feel that you both made, you know, like a two, you know, a two provider consent sort of. Yeah, I think that's a great idea because no one's going to feel comfortable. You know, when someone doesn't appear yeah. to have a, a serious work of breathing, but their SATs are super low, but you know they're at that point where you're going to have to intubate because they're maybe mentating a little uh, off compared to before. You, you yeah. just need someone there to also agree with you that. Yeah, this is the right yeah. thing to do. I think I think that's totally. I true. mean, it really, truly is like the highly most you know most difficult and distressing decision that I have ever had, really, as a you know, provider. That's so crazy, and we don't really even have at this point. I mean, I've read all the articles. I'm keeping up on it. Any real explanation for why that happens? Right. We don't have an explanation. I mean, I have some thoughts. You know, tell me, like tell me what you're thinking of my thoughts. You know, <laughs> but so one of the things is that you know. I almost think this is, it's like a disease without a treatment model, you know, that it's like some of, it's like our model is just not quite working, you know, and that model typically is, you know, this is ARDS based on sort of shunt physiology. Right. Um, and it just doesn't quite work here. I mean, the patients are, some of these patients that I have high, that are on high flow now in the ER, if I take off their high flow, they'll go from 90 to, to 10 oh. within two minutes, you know? And, and so they're responding. You can't say they don't respond to oxygen. I mean, we like take these high flows on and I thought about dermabonding them on, but we <laughs> haven't gone that far. But, um, but you know, usually we really we enforce it with them. And, and it doesn't really necessarily fit a VQ mismatch either because... Where's the CO2? Um, I mean, the CO2 is pretty low yeah. and, and really low. And, and it just, the physiology doesn't fit. Now, I'm going to tell you sort of a theory, which, and I don't know if it's right, but I do believe that, I believe that somehow in, in medicine... You know, there used to be, you know, it's like we used to have a lot of physiology, then we had the evidence to back it up. Now, sometimes I think we almost rely too much on evidence and we forget that we should have like a explanation for everything. 
um, you know, and the evidence to show that it works and then we feel good. But I, I do think that we need to at least try to think about what is going on. And so even if this is not correct, I think, you know, it's a hypothesis that, you know, can be proven. It can, you know, someone can, we can work it out and it could not be right or be right. And then we can move on to the next one. But I think that, you know, the thing that makes sense to me when I look at these patients is that actually their physiology is functioning like a problem of diffusion, mm-hmm. um, which is very strange because there's almost no acute conditions that cause diffusion problems, um, which is, you know, usually a problem of sort of advanced pulmonary fibrosis mm-hmm. or, or something, um, something like that. And, and But in that sense, it, you know, it is acting like that. They respond very well to oxygen. And uh, when they, you know, if it is a diffusion problem and anything that um, sort of uh, increases the or decreases the transit time through the capillaries should make things worse because there's just not enough time for the oxygen to, to equilibrate. And so, you know, sure enough, they have severe, you know, exercise intolerance and they really drop. Um, and so, you know, the best thing I can think is that there's something about the virus is causing, you know, some kind of diffusion problem, you know, the alveolar, alveolar capillary complex, whether it's, you know, edema or something like that. And then I think, you know, over time that builds up and they get a progressive um, sort of hypoxemic diffusion problem. And then I do think, I know there's a lot of, you know, debate about this high altitude pulmonary edema (laughs) and certainly a a tremendous amount of critics. And, and, you know, I was never saying, initially I was never saying that this is what it was. I was saying that I have never seen anything, you know, I've never seen a hate patient. I am the, you know, farthest from an expert on that. Um, but I, but I had never seen this disease before either. And the only thing I, in reading, I could somewhat, uh, you know, match it to is, was that. And I do think that if this is a progressive uh, hypoxemic uh, diffusion disorder, you know, I can see that if we say that humans do have kind of a maladaptive uh, pulmonary vasoconstrictive response to low oxygen levels, um, I, I think that it's certainly possible that you know, that, that that is also going on, you know, that essentially their oxygen gets so low that they have, you know, these uh, pulmonary vasoconstrictive responses, which leads to sort of regional pulmonary edema, um, which worsens everything in, until death. And, you know, I can tell you that I have seen more than a few patients that uh, come to our door and, and they're walking, you know, and they're sat to like 30 at triage and we rush them in. By the time we rush them into recess, you know, they've gone bradycardic um, and they have pink frothy sputum coming out of their mouth. Yeah. And, you know, that is an anecdote for sure. But, but a lot of us in the ER have seen it. Uh-huh. And, you know, I'm sure a lot of other people have seen it. And I don't see anything else that that could be but pulmonary edema. So that's my sort of working model. Now, we're not necessarily treating based on that model because we need some evidence right. that, that, it, it, that it's helpful, which... You know, in that sense, if that was a working model, then you'd say, okay, we really should be more aggressive with heart rate and you know, slow it down and maybe try to control the fevers more and we might, you know, have some answers. But that's my my theory for how it's the only theory I have that makes some somewhat physiologic sense, even though it's it might be somewhat unprecedented and you know, in, in a viral pneumonitis. It does make sense. I mean, the, you know, there's other theories out there that were talks about issues on the heme ring and that didn't quite yeah. make a lot of sense physiologically. And then there was a discussion about microemboli, but then you should see the BACO2 increasing if you've got that much of a dead space. Yeah. You know, none of and that you really should fit. have, if it's like, 
I like the Mike Rambolite for a while, but I you should too. have like some kind of, you know, you're like, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, but I'm in. You should kind of have, <laughs> I know, sometimes it's too quick to go in. But, uh, no, I mean, you should have some increases in, you know, capillary pressures and right? some increase yeah. in, uh, in, you know, pulmonary pressures. And, you know, we haven't, I haven't been able to put in like a pulmonary artery catheter, but I, you know, I've, I know people have, and, you know, what I'm reading is, is that they're not, you know, they're not as high as one would expect. So, um, Back you to know, the drawing board. <laughs> back, to, back to the drawing board as the patients sort of keep piling up. But, um, but yeah, that's sort of what my thinking is now. And, you know, we're hoping that we may be able to try to prove it. You know, it's hard. Like, even if we pull all the vitals, you know, we're, we're, we don't have a lot of time now to try to, like, do research, which no. is tough. I think yeah. everyone's working real hard that, you know, we have all this mounds of data. We just don't really have, you know, the personnel to look through it. Um uh, but you know, if we look at the vitals and we can show that there is a correlation between, you know, a fast heart rate, um, and, and decreased saturations, although it's hard to say which one came first, but, you know, I think we're going to try to look at some of that stuff. Uh, meanwhile, what we're doing is just trying to kind of, um, provide as much oxygen as we can. And then, you know, a lot of people still require intubation mm-hmm. and, and at least initially in the ER, we're trying, we are sort of subscribing to Gadnoni's um, notion that, that, uh, to provide sort of as least um, keep as one needs, you know, in order to to achieve an adequate enough that. Uh, with the two phenotypes, that article that came out, I think it was uh, in a- April fourteenth or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that that's a really interesting article. How he divides it and how it transitions from L to H. It, I think people are seeing yeah. that in action. No, I think they are, and I think the one thing people can't deny is that when you put them on events. You know, they seem to have a compliance, which is just a little bit better, a little bit higher than one would normally expect. Um, you know, I think what's hard is like, you know, what I'm seeing is I don't think the patients necessarily are like, you know, L one day and H the next right. day. So there's like this slow transition transition zone, <laughs> which is very like uh, you know, difficult to you know, figure out. It's so hard for us and so hard to unlearn. And partly because I don't know the answer is chasing the saturation. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that if you insist in some of the patients that I have that are, you know, real severe, if you insist on them saturating at 92, then you're going to, there's no, they're on a FH of 100%. And there's really no, nothing else one can do except increase the teeth. Yep. Um, although people can be prone in the ER, it's difficult. We don't really have the personnel to do that. Um, but uh, even, I'm, you know, I think upstairs in my hospital now, you know, I, I'm seeing most people, I think everyone's trying to protect the people a little bit more than one necessarily usually would. Right. Yeah. And are you guys seeing, I, I know you're doing the high flow nasal, nasal cannula. Are you seeing from the beginning of when these patients came in to now more people either being delayed to intubation or not having intubation that otherwise would have happened? No. We're seeing a little bit of both, and it takes time. Like, that's what's hard. Right now, we're keeping all high-flow patients in the ER simply because they cannot go to the floor right. and because the hospital's too busy. Um, and, you know, there's patients on the floor waiting to get the IC that are already intubated, and it takes time. Like, we have patients that have been there seven, eight days in the wow. ER, which is, uh, Crazy. <laughs> you know, but uh, it is true that we are able to watch them a little bit better, and then if we need to, we move them and we intubate them. And, and I don't know the numbers yet. What going into it, I, I felt reading, you know, Italy's literature that that probably, you know, I, I tried to tell, you know, the rest of the staff that people didn't have sort of, you know, 
too high expectations. The 30%, I, I hoped, would not have to be intubated. Mm-hmm. That would otherwise be. Um, and I hope that if we shave some time off the other ones, that we'd at least, you know, save vent time and for them and for the hospital. Right. Um, and, I, and I think it's it looks like it's about that, maybe even a little bit better, you know. Um, but but some of the people that are making it through, I don't necessarily think would make it through a ventilator run. They're not necessarily the healthiest people. Um, so so you know, we'll see what the numbers are. You know, one thing that I you know, it's hard to say because it's anecdotal, but there's this all this question of whether the virus directly uh, affects the kidneys and the liver and so forth. And, and we are just not, I mean, we have patients that I know would be intubated because, I mean, they're on a hundred percent high flow. And if you would take it off, they drop to 20. So we really have to watch them. Um, uh, uh, and usually when they're that severe, they end up getting intubated. Um, point, yeah. but, but, but we've had some that we took pretty far and, you know, there's just, we haven't seen the rates of renal failure and multi-organ failure that, that you see after you put them on the vent. Oh, you know, so, so it's just anecdotal, but, you know, my question, which is the big crux of the question, you know, is, is this transition, you know, if we just leave someone, um, you know, an L-type patient who's not intubated and were we not to do anything, you know, would they die as an H-type patient? And, my sense is that they just probably wouldn't. And, and I think that, um, you know, and even Gattinoni talks about whether this transition is a natural evolution of the disease or is it due, you know, to lung injury from, from ventilation. Right. Um, and that's not to say that we can avoid it. I mean, they, you know, they, they need to live and we have to have, you know, an oxygen. I mean, they would die otherwise and we have no other way. Uh, you know, if we can get 200% on the high flow, that would be awesome. But, um, but whether or not the actual, you know, that what we're seeing is just an increased rate of ventilator-induced lung injury. Well, I mean, I don't know the answer to that, but I certainly think it's worth looking into. I think so, too. I mean, that much PEEP in ARDSnet protocols on lungs that are not ARDS lungs, per se, is going to cause iatrogenic damage. I mean, they're already... There's already significant inflammation, and Gadnoni talks about you know lung weight once you get toward the H uh, phenotype and all the inflammation that's there, and there's probably some degree of cytokine storm occurring in that H period. I mean, we're only going to make yeah, it worse. No. no, I think. I mean, I think that's probably true, and that's not. You know, some people say, "Oh, like vents, we always knew could cause lung injury." You know, that's the whole point of you know lo- you know lung protective ventilation right. is we're trying to limit the lung damage, but it's not. You know, I think sometimes. You know, especially the public thinks that uh, sometimes, you know, vents are just sort of more benign than they are, mm-hmm. you know. And, uh, you know, at least one of my uh, uh, sort of attendings when I was a fellow just always used to say, you know, just remember the ones that are just dangerous. They're just dangerous devices. <laughs> and we just, you know, we need them, but we really just, you know, we try to keep patients off of them. And that's why we're aggressive, you know, trying to wean them and get them off. But, you know, I think that there's a possibility. There's at least a possibility that, in this particular disease is that the, we happen to be, um, you know, because we're chasing a saturation that we've always believed was necessary, uh, that we, at least in the beginning, we're using high pressures on especially fragile lungs. Well, you know, and that's, that's part of the danger of protocols, right? You know, you, when you've been doing something long enough, you'll find patients through your career that don't fit in the protocol that everyone's supposed to fit in, and that's these patients. And so you have to step yeah, no. away from that dogma and think different outside the box. 
I think that's what you did, which no. is phenomenal. Yeah, no. And, and I think that's why sometimes I talk to people, they say, oh, well, you, you know, why, why are we worried about the protocols? You know, we're obviously looking at the compliance of a patient. And I'm like, well, you're obviously doing that, but I don't know that that's, you know, I'm talking to people in academic institutions with fellows where they're discussing compliance. And, and you know, there's no study that I know of where, you know, there's a protocol where they necessarily tested compliance and adjusted the vents to one's compliance, you know, but, but people do that because they believe it's right, you know? Uh, um, but, uh, you know, I do think that there are a lot of hospitals, you know, across the country and, and probably, especially if they're, you know, uh, overrun in the pandemic and understaffed that are, are not necessarily going to have the time or necessarily the expertise to have sort of a, you know, pulmonologist, critical care doctor, or someone who's used to the intensive care kind of, um, adjusting each, vent every few hours to a patient's compliance so that's that's why i was concerned about you know these these kind of broad protocols if indeed the 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 model sort of the, the treatment doesn't necessarily fit the disease model that we're staring at well I, I think that's accurate and um how as far as the once you've got those people to the point where they have to be intubated are you guys still generally using aprv um with low peep so we're not, I'm not doing kind of APRV. APRV was something I thought like would, uh, uh, would be good when I thought this was a disease uh, that was more like an alveolar recruitment issue, which now I just, it seems like whatever it is, it seems like something more vascular, mm. um, in nature, at least in the initial phase. So, you know, what we're doing is basically what Gadnoni suggested, which is, uh, you know, after we intubate them, they generally will drop their stats from like, you know, 85 to like 30, you know, even Jeez. if we can get the tube in pretty quick. I mean, it's just a very quick drop. Um, but the weird thing is that, you know, most of the time their heart rates don't seem to change as one would normally expect with a stat of 30. And, and so then we, um, we generally RSI them and, and we put them on the vent and we started a peep of, you know, if someone's like normal size, we'll do five. If they're a little bigger, we'll maybe do seven. And then you got to just, uh, an FIO2 of 100%, and we'll do a tidal volume of around, you know, six to eight as opposed to four to six. Um, so six to eight cc's. So a lot of times it's like 450 right. or 500 for a guy. And, and, um, and then the question is like, you just got to watch the stats and, and it just, because it's going to go to like 45, 50. <laughs> and I think your natural impulse when you're staring at that stat More volume. is to slam, <laughs> is to slam up the P, slam up the volume to just do something aggressive. You know, you just, that's like, even for me, you just, you, but I think that like really with this disease that like, like slow movements are better. And so, you know, we don't want to go too much on the peep because right. a lot of times their compliance is, it, you know, their driving pressure is at least around five or six. And then if you go higher, their driving pressure, you know, it's higher suggesting you're over descending possibly. Right. So we just wait. And usually, you know, the sat will slowly go up back to where it was. Um, um, and maybe we'll give a little bit more peep. So, you know, I'm telling them, you know, don't go over a peep of eight or 10 without just thinking about it, you know, mm-hmm. and we're initially accepting a sat of about, you know, of above 80. Um, initially, um, I mean, the patients were talking to us at 80, so, <laughs> um, <laughs> so, weird. so, so we're accepting a stat of 80 and then, and then, you know, if they're, if they're dropping down to 70, you know, you just make a decision what you believe is more injurious, you know, it, you know, maybe if they have heart disease or something and, you know, you just worry that they can't sit at a stat of 70, 
five. And part of it is just what did they look like before you intubated them? And the biggest thing I think, which I tell them, is that really I believe with this disease that your vitals should look nearly the same after you intubate them as before. And so if they are hypotensive, you know, I think it's one of two things. Either they're hypovolemic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, initially we were running everyone dry because that's what we did with ARDS. Mm-hmm. And we want to try out the, the lungs. And yeah. That's just, yeah, I mean, that was even protocol and training. Just that was what we thought was right, you know. But, but I think now that some of them are pretty volume down from having raging fevers and breathing 50 times a minute for a long time <laughs> and not eating. So, you know, we give a little bit. We try to keep them relatively hydrated. Um, on high flow and you know even they can eat or drink but if they're not then we give them you know, supplemental fluid and then if, if they're hypotensive you know just consider bringing down your peeps because um, they seem to have a very very um, pretty regular consistent res- hypotensive response With you know to, to increase to too high a peak yeah. that's amazing and do you, are, when you're doing yeah. through that process where, you know, you go to intubate them, they drop to 30 and then you're sort of bringing them up. It, are their hemodynamics changing much from that period of 30 back? No, to like, that's crazy. That was like another, I mean, that was all this stuff that was like, you're like, what is going on? Because yeah. we were, you know, and I, that's what the anesthesiologists too, because they were getting called, at, you know, to patients that were like at 50 on the floors. <laughs> um, and, you know, in the beginning of this, we're really trying not to bag patients, you know, yeah. this whole question of aerosolization. And so you can imagine the anesthesiology team is like running into the room. They get an overhead call. They're not counted up, mm-hmm. you know? And, and so, you know, they, it was really tough for the anesthesiologists, really. They, they were innovating, you know, 10, 20, 30 people a day. So that, you know, they're just running all around the hospital, but they would get there, you know, a patient would be sat in 50 with normal, you know, normal blood pressure and heart rate, which was, was what it was. And then we'd watch them, you know, we'd intubate them. Um, the anesthesiologists would intubate them and they'd be back to 10 Jeez. and still their heart rate wouldn't change. And, you know, when I was in the ICU, we were having, um, we had the anesthesiology team come intubate them. So we, uh, you know, so I watched them with them. And, you know, at one point I saw a sat of zero, zero for like <laughs> five seconds on the monitor and the heart rate didn't change. And it, it so these are all the weird things where I was just like, this is, you know, so I talked to the anesthesiologist, I said, yeah, you know, it's just, who knows what's going on. It's just something was completely, all these little signs of, of that something's just different. It's just not, uh, so it seems like a different disease. It reminds yeah, me that just, of that feeling you have when you give adenosine and you're hoping that the heart rate comes back. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, oh, you know, <laughs> You're like, I know it will, but... Uh, <laughs> if this could be the day. <laughs> a little extra prayer. Yeah, know? exactly. But, yeah, so it's, in a sense, it kind of, you know, now you go into the intubation, I feel like some people are like, ah, oh, it's okay, they're 75, but they're not going <laughs> to... But it's hard, because some people, like, uh, I have seen some people get bradycardic, so, you know, when we intubate, we generally, because there's that 15-second lag, you know, mm-hmm. or 10-second lag on the stat, so I generally say just give it, look for 8, 10 seconds, and give them some gentle... Uh, a breath. We have viral filters now, and yeah, we, we, we try to get pretty, pretty gowned up. And um, you know, I feel like if you if you take bagging off the table, it makes for highly stressful <laughs> uh, situation. Uh, most of them don't have a lot of food in their stomach, and so yeah, it's, uh, that's it, true. It's been okay. And so you've got this interesting position there with this ERICU mix. Plus, you know, you're probably responding to some degree, at least in the beginning, within the house. Yeah. So you're seeing this progression. 
which most people are not going to see, right? My care is incidental care. I'm in, I do what I have to do, and then I'm finished with it, or it's an anesthesia. Yeah, I think, I mean, that was part of it in the beginning, I think, was uh, what kind of allowed me to see some of the stuff, is I was really, you know, I was up in the ICU, so I was at the tail end, but, you know, all my buddies were in the ER, and, and, and I was the only ICU that had beds, so I kind of felt that, like, you know, all the patients on the floor that were going to come to an ICU were already kind of my patients. So I, you know, I was just running around the floors, kind of scouting them out, um, you know, trying to get these high flows. Cause what high flow did is it, it initially, it just, it was like a, it, a dam that just, uh, you know, we were having all these patients flood in and you put them on high flow and someone we would need to intubate, we might not need to intubate for 12, you know, to 24 hours. And, and so we kind of dammed up these patients as they came to the ICU. Some of them came to the ICU then. You know, I was accepting patients on high flow settings and a lot of them, you know, a few of them uh, uh, were discharged and never needed to be intubated. But then what happened was just we ran out of ICU beds. So you had these patients on high flow on the floor and they just had no bed to go to, you know, when they hit the point where they, you know, I was saying when they, they required 60% FiO2 to achieve a stat of 88, 90, they come to ICU, but then we ran out, ran out of ICU beds. But yeah, so I was seeing all these patients, you know, from the door to the floors, to the ICUs, and, and it was just, uh, you know, sometimes I'd see them at the door in the ER, and a day later, you know, I get called on the floor, and so it, was, it allowed me to see all this, and really, it, it is a, it's, I cannot, it's just a, like a progressive disease, you know, it's just like they slowly get more and more hypoxemic, and you just don't know when it's going to stop, and there's no real marker that I've seen, I mean, everyone's looking at CRP yeah. and everything. And then, I don't know, one day, 15 days in or sometime, it just stops, you know? It's really like a... That's so crazy. Such a terrible, terrible, terrible disease. And, and, you know, you feel a little bit... You know, every day, it's like you're with them. You know, they're having fevers on their 14th day. You're like, this has got to be the last one, you know? Oh, yeah. (laughs) But... Yeah, and I think that for your your perspective there is, is very different than most just because you've gotten to follow a lot of these people. I mean, have you, have you yeah. also seen, there's been this, of course, you know, persistent assumption by maybe people under 40 <laughs> that, that, you know, they're not going to get yeah. sick from this or people under 50 even. And have you seen a lot of people that were younger that didn't have all the comorbidities that are still. Yeah, no, we've seen a lot. So that is definitely not true. Yeah. You know, in, in my ICU, we had, you know, a 29 year old and a 33 year old and there I've seen many under 40. Uh, I've seen many die under 40. Those, they actually survive uh, fairly long, you know, event runs, but, um, uh, but no, I've certainly seen definitely, I mean, the hard thing in New York is I feel like this, so many people had it that, that, uh, you know, and now only the most severe came, came here, but I bet if you did antibody testing, just a lot of people had it. There was one night in March, March 13th, which just like we all kind of knew that 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 we shouldn't go out and everyone went out, you know. <laughs> and then the next day the city was shut down and it's like, oh, if you could just take back that one night. Right. All those people um, got dinged right then. It was like boom. Um but uh but yeah, no, you know and if you compare it to, to not to compare it to hate, you know, to say this is high altitude thickness, but if you're trying to see you know, it does seem to affect the population which would have an exaggerated, uh, um, uh, you know, hypoxemic uh, vasoconstrictive pulmonary response, mm-hmm. which is to say, you know, uh, generally uh, kids are protected and women 
who are uh, 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 premenopausal, you know, are generally protected. And those that aren't, you know, at least have exaggerated responses are those that have sleep apnea, you know, heavier people. Uh, um, uh, so, you know, I don't know, but it, that does also seem to at least um, somewhat fit, you know. Mm. Um, but who knows? I, I don't know why, you know, we have a lot of skinny people that get it. We have just, I don't know why some people get it and some people don't. And I don't know why for some people it just seems to, you know, stop on day 11 and other people are on day, you know, 14 and just keep going. It's, oh. That's what's it's like the unpredictability in here is just, uh, yeah, I mean, I know it's terrible for the patient. One, it's terrible for us, but, you know, we're, we're just, you know, waiting. Because one day, you know, this is real anecdotal and I don't know if it's true, but at least a lot of my initial patients in the ICU it's like they would look terrible, terrible. And then one day you'd walk in and their faces were just like brighter and, and they'd be like, I feel better, <laughs> you know? And in two days they'd be off oxygen. In spite of you all know, you people. Just, <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's uh, like, so I don't know. That's really going to go, you know, but you know, every day when I go to try to see some patients, I just hope, you know, they look at me and smile and say, I feel better. I've heard similar stories to that from multiple people now that it's almost like a light switch happened. And they're yeah. better the next day, and no one knows why. Yeah, it's weird. They just literally they say, you know, I feel better today. <laughs> You're like, wow. Have you have you seen those um, uh, progressively seem to getting better, but then have this second sort of wave? I think it's a lot related, maybe to co infections. But it, have you started to see that? Yeah, happen? I feel like I. It's hard. I feel like uh, I feel like I've seen people that I thought were getting better because they seem to have this cyclical like. Uh, I mean, really, they have these, like, cyclical breathing and fevers, and I don't even know. I wish we could, like, track, have one person write a diary of what's going on. But I've had patients that, yeah, I thought were getting better, and their breathing slowed to 20, and, you know, they look good, and, and then they got worse again and needed to be intubated. Um, yeah, so, uh, but it's hard to say, really. Yeah, it's just uh, such a tricky, tricky mm. syndrome of of constellation of symptoms of what we're, we're seeing. It is crazy. Have you guys seen any particular treatments? I know everyone's trying, basically throwing everything against the wall at this point, you know, like yeah. the IL-6 inhibitors for cytokine storm or hydroxychloroquine or remdesivir. Is there anything that seems to stick out at all? So to be honest, for me, like I, I haven't seen anything that feels like it's working now. The truth is that a lot of the trials initially um, were for compassionate use. Right. And, and so to get into the trials, to get the medications, they had to be, you know, intubated and initially like in renal failure, um, but at least severe, you know. So we tried to get some people that we knew were severe on high flow, but they didn't fit the trial because they, they weren't intubated yet. So I do sense that some of this stuff is, was just initially be, being given too late. Mm -hmm. um, so just recently now, uh, I mean, we're always talking with our infectious disease doctors, and I think now we're able to get uh, patients, you know, the anti-IL-6 a little bit earlier. So we'll right. see if that works. But, but you know, we have every patient, you know, every patient I inundate is on hydroxychloroquine. So, uh, you know, I, I don't put so much stock in those. Right. Um, you know, people ask me about, yeah, what we should be giving. And the truth is, I haven't seen any medication that necessarily seems like it's working. And, and so... Whatever the hospital's policy is, I'm very happy to follow with that. Right. We are now have more access to the convalescent plasma, which I haven't mm. seen anyone get yet. Um, but I've heard anecdotally good things. So 
you know, hopefully maybe that'll work. But, uh, but yeah, I guess the short answer is no. I haven't seen anything that I would really put a lot of stock in. It just uh, seems like the virus goes until it stops. Well, and that's the thing, you know, when you're when you're not doing control arms in a study, and in theory, ninety yeah, yeah, percent exactly. of them get better. How do you know if it was what you gave, or they would have got better anyway? That's the difficult part of those, you know. So that that persists. Unfortunately, that persists. The idea that let's just give them everything. Yeah, no, exactly. I, I think maybe if we get a little bit out, you know, someone will be able to take a bigger, even bigger scope and mm-hmm. figure out if some of this stuff works. But, um, you know, it's so hard because you really just you want something to work. So you just believe. You, know, you really yeah, you want most of it. us. It's like. If they're like, oh, maybe it'll work, you're like, heck, let's do it, you know? Yeah. Um, but but I haven't seen anything that I would necessarily know. Man, you guys uh, are doing amazing work there. I mean, the, the pressure yeah. in New York is, it's it's not anywhere else in the country like it is there. Yeah. It, I think I hear New Orleans is pretty... It's getting pretty bad, it's yeah. It's pretty tough, too. It's pretty bad. How's everybody um, doing, like, from a you know, personal mental perspective after seeing all this? It's got to be difficult. I think... I think we're doing good. You know, a lot of us have gotten sick. You know, I didn't get, I, you know, a lot of us like feel like we got sick very early. I feel like it was in this community very early on when coughing on your doctor was just like a normal part of <laughs> your interaction. So, um, like but, but a lot of us have gotten, yes, yeah, you're like, come on. But it wasn't like you're going to get kicked out of the hospital yeah. for it. Um, but uh, no, I, I think a lot of people have gotten sick, like actually, you know, tested positive and had to stay out and came back. But I think we're doing okay. I mean, I think it really is a time where, like, you you got to be, like, good to each other, mm-hmm. you know, because it, it, it's tough. It, it really it's tough not – it's just tough because you're treat, we're used to treating something and feeling pretty good about what we're doing. And now, you know, we feel like a little bit we're wandering through unknown stuff. And, you know, you didn't realize it in the beginning, but there is a sort of a, an angst to that. Um, you know, patients are asking, when do you think I'm going to get better? And you legitimately like, I don't know, (laughs) really, Uh, when do you think you'll get better? You (laughs) have as much, but so it's tough in that sense. So I think it's high stress for that. It's especially high stress. You know, I have a a two year old, uh, who, who actually is now upstate with his grandparents just because I was working all the time and, um, you know, I miss him terribly, but mm-hmm. but I will say there is a little bit less stress and even talking to other people who kind of separated from their families. You know, it, it, I feel, you know, sometimes you leave your shift, you feel like your whole apartment is full of COVID. And <laughs> yeah. I do think for pa- patients that live with their, you know, especially their parents, their grandparents, you know, it's just a very stressful. It all is very stressful. But I will say that people, you know, we've never been treated so good by the community. Mm-hmm. Like we're getting fed every day, you know. That's great. It's, uh, people there's this food being delivered and uh and i think you know uh, i think people are pulling through it but it certainly is a it's a stressful time well you guys deserve that stuff i mean it's uh mm-hmm. it's heroic work especially in a pandemic this is you know it's hard not to win all the time because most of the time we win right you know it, yeah it's disease yeah. processes I mean, you know and you know how it's going to go and yeah maybe 0.001 percent aren't going to do well but most do well and this is not like yeah that. no and even if they don't do well, you know kind of why they're not going right. to do well. And you kind of sit down with that family meeting and you're kind of come with this knowledge that you impart. And, right. You know, now you like you kind of sit down and, you know, you're like, well, I don't even really quite know what I'm going to say. But uh, it's, it's tough. tough. You know, it's tough for the family. You know, I don't know. 
I think most hospitals, you know, families aren't allowed, which is a whole different dynamic. You mm-hmm. know, it's just, uh, you know, I was like yeah. the, you're the person the there. Yeah, no. Yeah. You're the person there and you're, you're kind of, uh, you know, it's really tough for families. I mean, that's when I really realized that, wow, we are really changing the model of what we're going to do because sort of having these families there is like the, the bedrock of kind of, you know, um, patient centered care. You know? It really is. But uh, it's just, it is what it is. Oh man. So if you can give any advice to anesthesia people, emergency medicine, critical yeah. care people from your experience, which is more than 99% of people in the country at this point, mm-hmm. What would you tell them? I'd say uh, I'd say that in this disease, try to go slower and gentler than you normally would, because I feel like, especially in a CZER, like we're trained to to take control, you know. So I tell the emergency. It just seems like, <laughs> yeah, it just seems like, uh, you know, in this case, that kind of uh, um, like stepping back and being gentler in most things with with how you ventilate a patient. Uh, with how you treat yourself with, you know, your wins and your losses and your hopes and, you know, everything that it's just, it doesn't seem like a disease where if we, you know, just go in with all force that we'll necessarily win and we'll probably get super tired, you know, doing it. So that's the, the one thing I can say is just the, you know, in this sense, in this disease, it seems like everything's a little bit flipped in medicine and, and sort of a, a gentler, approach is probably probably better um yeah well dr kyle still has been great to have you on here everyone Uh, across the country appreciates the information you've put out there i mean you know it's tens of thousands of people that are are reading and watching those videos especially the the ones with event settings i thought those were great and um yeah oh thank you well people appreciate that right you know we want to hear from someone who's doing it every day and and i appreciate your time to come on and talk to everybody and the amount of work that you're doing both, you know, in the ER with no. the rest of your colleagues, but just on, on your own free time when you get home like this. Yeah, no, thank you. Uh, thanks for asking me. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Absolutely. That's all for this episode of Anesthesia Deconstructed. For more information based on today's discussion, be sure to visit us at anesthesia-deconstructed.com. You'll also gain access to our blogs, editorials, and more resources to keep you updated on the science, politics, and realities of today's medical industry. That's anesthesia-deconstructed.com. 